0: Hi, this is Nikki Klein from Battlestar Galactica, and you're listening to Galactica Quorum. It's a fracking podcast.
1: Previously on the Galactica
0: Quorum. Whoever directed this one, it was very different. Just Callie's kind of blurriness, you know, she, here she is, and Tyrrell's far in the back blurry. A very different use of camera, for sure. This episode, it hit home really hard. It's really one of the most powerful episodes I've ever seen. This episode struck me as very much like the Callie episode. The director was the same, Michael Nankin. And I also did some more digging and realized that he also directed Maelstrom, which was the Starbuck death episode. And he also directed the Passage episode, which was the cat death episode. Jeez! So he has one more episode to direct in one of the last four episodes, so watch out. Someone's gonna die! (laughs)
1: I became known as the Grim Reaper, and every time I showed up, all the actors were running for cover. In my version, the baby goes flying.
0: Hello, welcome to the Galactica Quorum. It's a fracking podcast about Battlestar Galactica and Caprica. This is episode 92. I'm Brian, and in this episode, I'll be interviewing Michael Nankin, who directed several Battlestar Galactica episodes, and now several Caprica episodes, as well as several other shows you probably have heard of, like CSI, Flash Forward... Trauma, Heroes, Sarah Connor Chronicles, and the list goes on. Before we get to that, some housekeeping. If you would like to reach us, our email is gquorum at gmail.com. That's spelled G-Q-U-O-R-U-M. Our voicemail is 301-358-5175. You can find us on the web at galacticacorum.com. You can find us on Facebook and also on Twitter. Our Twitter name is Galactica Quorum. Also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, The Geek Quorum, which covers all other things sci-fi besides Battlestar Galactica. You can find that in iTunes if you search for Geek Quorum or on the web at geekquorum.com. Michael Mankin was the director of several Battlestar Galactica episodes. You may not know the titles of some of the episodes, but you'll recall what happened in those episodes. There was Scar, one of the great Cat and Starbuck episodes. The Passage, in which Cat dies. Maelstrom, the one where Starbuck, quote, dies. The Ties That Bind. Callie dies. And that's just a sampling of some of them. Additionally, he's done a couple Capric episodes so far, and he has a few more in the can that will be airing this fall. I talked with him and asked him some questions about Battlestar and Caprica, and here's that discussion. I'm talking with Michael Nankin, who's the director of various TV shows, most notably for this podcast, Battlestar Galactica and Caprica, but also several other shows like CSI, Flash Forward, Drama. Now, like I said, Battlestar fans will know you from those BSG episodes and Caprica, but your background goes back to other great dramas like Chicago Hope and Picket Fences and Life Goes On. How did your career get started and eventually lead up to directing episodic television?
1: I actually had this uh, incredible success and stroke of luck early in my career. I directed a feature film for Disney when I was 22 years old and just out of college. They'd seen a um, student film I made. And, you know, I had the, uh, the film school transition to studio film work in the way that like it never happens but everyone expects to happen when you go to film school. You know from that I was I was working in features for a while as a feature writer for the most part for a number of years and then transition to television uh on the show Life Goes On. The way that happened was a friend of mine, like Rick Rosenthal, who directed the movie I wrote, that directed the pilot of Life Goes On and just sort of dragged me into it. I was very reluctant to go into television, but as soon as I got there I just loved the pace uh of episodic television and the quality of it.
0: Could you describe the process a director goes through when they are approached to do a particular show, how they receive the script, laying out the blocking of what you want to do, all the way through to the editing? The show shows up for an hour on the screen, and it's shot over a period of maybe six to eight days, but your work involved is stretched over several weeks, isn't it?
1: It depends. This year, this past year, Caprica... Battlestar didn't do this, uh, but Caprica and some other shows this year started to do this, where they'll book a director for two episodes together. So you'll do episodes five and six, and you'll be booked for episodes five and six. And you won't shoot them consecutively; you shoot them as one big episode. They uh, do this as a cost-cutting measure, so that you know, if you're doing Caprica, for example, all the scenes that take place, you know, in the Adama house for two episodes are shot together. So there's a great economy in uh, you don't have to move back and forth so much. You're essentially shooting a little movie. You're actually shooting two little movies. <laughs> so the time frame in that is essentially twice as long as doing a regular episode. Traditionally you get T V directors who book well in advance. So months ahead of time you know you're going to do, say, numbers episode sixteen. But you don't know what the story is, and neither do the writers and producers at that point. You know, there's a certain uh, luck of the drawing whether you, get, you know, what script you get. Actually, having said that, Battlestar made an effort to cast directors and try to link you with something that appealed you know, to your strength. But anyway, when you show up, you have traditionally seven days of prep and eight or nine days to shoot, depending on the show. Battlestar was divided up: you'd have either seven or eight days, depending on the complexity of the show, of uh, principal photography, and one day on a green screen where we would do all the, you know, the pilots and the ships and stuff. When you do uh, two episodes back to back, as I did on Caprica, you prep for 14 days, and then you shoot for you know 16 or 17. So that's only answering a very small part of your question. So that's the time frame. Prep on a television show is half of it's usually location scouting. When I did Flash Forward, that was two episodes blocked together. I had 15 days of prep. I spent 14 of them in a van trying to find places that would double as Tokyo and Hong Kong. <laughs> Whereas on Battlestar, there, you know, you could go episodes without ever getting in a fan because everything took place on the ship. Or if we'd had a flashback to Caprica, much of that stuff was already established and so there wasn't even that you go find it all over again. What that meant was that on Battlestar, I got quite a bit more intensive creative prep than on, you know, I don't say trauma. Also the advantage of uh, Battlestar was that the scripts were generally ready on time. For example, on the trauma that I just did, I didn't have a shooting script until the day before sort started shooting. Hmm. Battlestar we generally had, you know, we had the full, we had a script for the full seven days. So prep is generally taken up with working with the writers and getting the script in the best shape it can possibly be. This involves me asking a lot of questions. Dealing with costume design, set design, talking to the director of photography about certain photographic effects I have in mind. There's almost no chance for rehearsal with the actors because they're shooting the previous episode while you're prepping. I did a CSI a couple of months ago where we did some very careful color coordination where I got costumes, set design, and the cinematographer all together. And we uh, you know, sort of created a psychological profile through color and linked them to different characters that I played throughout the show. Mm-hmm. That's a subtle, subtle emotional tone for the audience. Some shows have a read-through where they gather the cast together at lunch and you read through the script. There's a great big production meeting just before you start shooting. And then you go, you start shooting. As far as, you mentioned, blocking the actors, that happens when you shoot. You know, in prep, I will have spent time thinking about the blocking, thinking about the dramatic approach to the scenes. And I'll have spent time just standing on the sets alone, you know, reading the scenes and, and trying to imagine how it would look and where they would move. But none of it's really locked down until, you know, you show up on the day and the actors show up at, you know, seven in the morning and you, you know, you start working the scene out.
0: Now, many shows have a writer's Bible for characters in the story. Is there something similar for directors, like a director's Bible that lays out a way a series is typically presented in shot? For example, CSI, very distinctive look and structure. Are you able to input your own style into No,
1: that? I've never seen a director's Bible. As a matter of fact, it's, it's somewhat of, a um, in my experience, it's somewhat of a fable that you go into a show and they say, well, this is the way we do it. My experience has generally been the opposite, which is bring us something new. The stories that CSI tells demand a certain a certain style, but the last one I did was like way outside the box for them, and they were delighted. Whereas, uh, but however, on Battlestar and Caprica it was total freedom. But here hear the constraints. When I went on Battlestar, they said, "Well, we sort of had this, you know, we shoot with two cameras at the same time. We like this, you know, gritty documentary style." Um, that was basically it. Hmm. That was the extent of the director's Bible. So I sort of embraced that, but as, as we went along, there were times where the drama of the scene demanded something else, and we did something else. Caprica also wide open in style. The overall approach is that Battlestar had this caught on the fly, gritty, handheld feel, and that was because it was after everything had blown up, and they wanted a certain elegance and smoothness to Caprica so that they didn't have the same jittering and quality. But those are very vague guidelines, you know? And drama. I shot a big uh, fight and shootout in Goldie's bar for a scene in the upcoming uh, season, and we just went and we shot it like Battlestar, went handheld, was gritty and you know raw, and but the scene just passed for it. Hmm.
0: Listening to Ron Moore's podcast, we often hear him refer to a director's cut, which he often says was like twenty minutes too long. What exactly is the director's cut? And knowing the length of an aired episode, why are they often submitted? That goes over the length of what you would have in a normal aired episode.
1: Well, the way it works is that uh, the director is shooting the episode. The editor is working. You know, the editor is about three days behind him. So you're shooting on a Tuesday. He's receiving Monday's work. It's got to be digitized, you know, organized. He's got to study it. So maybe by, you know, Wednesday or Thursday, he's got Monday's work cut. So a few days after you wrap, there's uh, what's called an editor's assembly he's working very quickly and does his best to you know, bring some coherence to it. And then he's also obligated to include everything that was shot. And I think that's what Ron Moore was talking about. Is generally the editor's cuts, mm. especially in Battlestar, were you know, like 20 minutes too long. Standard delivery time on an episode of television is about 42 and a half minutes. And we would always come in over an hour on Battlestar because Battlestar was a unique show in so many ways. But one of the ways was that it existed between the lines of dialogue. There are always these moments that were not in the script, but there are always things happening between the lines. The scenes would just be these silent moments. The scenes would just get longer and longer and longer. Anyway, after the uh, editor's assembly, the director comes in. No one's allowed to see the editor's assembly. The director's the first one, the only one to see it. And uh, director gets four days to make his cut. The director is not obligated to include every scene. So I would try to get my cuts down to time. I would just hack and slash. Mm. Pull stories out. Thank God Ron Moore and David Icke were as in love with these little moments as the rest of us were. So very often uh, they would keep the director's cut and honor the director's cut in a way that they would pull subplots out rather than compress all the dialogue. A lot of network shows would just, you'd cut those moments out and just have people talk mm-hmm. more quickly to get everything in. But they would just pull stuff out to have those moments. And those moments. So Battlestar is so powerful because it takes time on humanity Stein, through the dialogue. So, so I would generally, you know, I would only try to get my cuts down to time, and then I, they'd have a little, another DVD, like a, a supplemental DVD, <laughs> when they got my cut of uh, the entire ballpark story that I had cut out. That was edited, you know. And then they can make the choice of whether, you know, after the director uh, delivers his cut, and the producers get a whack out of the network, and the studios chime in, and then it changes or it doesn't.
0: Other episodes that scenes sometimes from episodes that were not the ones you shot are sometimes just because of the way the story works, they're inserted or they're removed back, moved forward. Is that frustrating at all when something like that happens? Or
1: Oh, it's, it's, uh, it makes you suicidal. My experience covered the vast spectrum of experience you can have. I mean, you know, There's episodes I've cut where essentially you're seeing the director's cut. Battlestar episode, uh, sometimes a great notion. The one that plays after they discovered that Earth is you know, mm-hmm. burned out in cinder. That's my cut. No one had any homework done, as a great, let go. Which is, of course, the director's dream every time yeah. out. And there's episodes that are just unrecognizable from um, from what I deliver. Mm. I try to stay in touch with what they're doing. But um, when I get a sense from the editor that they're changing everything, I just won't watch it.
0: <laughs> well, you mentioned sometimes a great notion I think that's one of my favorite episodes of the series, so I congratulate you on on that because I thought that was just a phenomenal episode with just so much going on emotionally and covering so many different bases in terms of where the plot was moving and the story of the series was moving, and just to bring it down to a personal level, the way it was done, I, I thought it was fantastic. But at the same time, because of the uncertainty of the writer's strike, that could have been the last episode. You didn't really know what was going to happen. Did you approach shooting that episode differently, knowing there was at least a possibility that could be the outcome?
1: Well, there was a lot of discussion. We didn't know whether we were going to shoot that episode until the night before. We were prepping it, but I can't remember exactly why, but there was a certain amount of brinksmanship going on between Ron Moore and the studio, and he was withholding the changes. And so we didn't know whether we'd shoot it or not until Finally, he released the pages, and you know. And that was it. And once the pages came out, there was no one could change it because the writers were all on the strike. And I'm directing it, but I'm also a member of the writers' guild, so I can't really change anything. So we went into it, and then Ron and the writers and everyone just left Vancouver to go walk the picket lines and left it in my hands, in the hands of the production. So I remember having a couple of dinners with Michael Reimer. We were shooting all the stuff on the Beach Brewer. About two hours' drive out of Vancouver, so we are all staying in these little hotels out there. And so we would sit down and have dinner and say, Okay, if this is the last show, what can we do with this footage? How can we reassemble this footage to make it an ending? And um, there wasn't a single good idea. There were a lot of ideas. But it wasn't written for an ending. It's not an ending. It's a terrible (laughs) waste to end the series. And we just we just turned it over every which way. We talked about combining it with other footage and stuff like kind in other episodes. And nothing was really satisfying, so it was a real godsend when, when we got the rest of the
0: episodes. Now hmm. like You said some of the episodes that they give you are to your strengths, and it would be hard not to notice that in a lot of episodes you direct characters just die. There was Starbuck yeah. dying, there was Cat dying, Callie dying, D.
1: Only Levi Barrelet. Um, I killed everybody.
0: <laughs> do you seek out those stories, or do they find you? Or no, no, it just happened. It
1: was you know, it was happenstance. They weren't assigning me the You know, I became known as the Grim Reaper. It's mm-hmm. a big joke of that. And every time I showed up, all the actors would run for cover. And you know, <laughs> no, they weren't assigning me the death episodes. And I wasn't seeking them out. It just so happened that it felt that way. I mean, if anything, they were tending to give me the more emotional stories. Mm-hmm. which were the ones where people died, but it was mostly uh, a fate.
0: Another sort of coincidence or uh, consistency is that a lot of those episodes also were written by Bradley Thompson and David Weddle, who also you work with on CSI. So is that something that is intentional also?
1: Yeah, that became intentional. after We realized how much fun we had working together. first couple of times it was uh, roll the diets. But we've actually done, I think we've done eight or nine hours of television together. So there's like a little filmmaking unit. I think you should get those guys. I think that's a podcast. <laughs> the Little Thompson, Nanking combination and themes that we've taken through two different shows. Anyway, after we found out how pleasant it was to work together, I mean, from both sides, you know, they were getting requests. Lettel and Thompson were asking for me, and I was asking for their scripts. <laughs> and sometimes we'd get it, and sometimes we wouldn't.
0: Just going back to the characters dying for a moment, since that is very important for the actor involved, how do you work with the actor and what is going to be their last episode for that series? How do you direct them specifically, knowing that uh, that's going to be their swan song, so to speak?
1: Well, let's talk about, it's different with every actor. Let's talk about Starbuck first. You know, even though no one but Rod Moore really knew at that point, no one thought that Starbuck would be going for you. Something had to happen. And so, you know, we left the moment of her death with a certain ambiguity so that we could do what we did. But we did take the fact that she died in that episode very seriously. And that was, and, and what we did to honor that was we just dug very deeply emotionally. If you watch, you know, Katie Sackhoff's work, in that, it's, it's astonishing. And she and I had this very intense, intimate journey together into some very dark parts of her psyche. And then she was just very much, she was there. She was dedicated, you know, she was just really willing to go to some very uncomfortable places, even more so than usual because it was the, the show where she dies. And it was just all about her and what she's wrestling with and this, you know, sort of Christmas carol revisitation with her mother and, really you know, witness her past and remake it in a way. And one of the things we talked about a lot was to stay away from boohoo of death. Mm-hmm. Which is the obvious way to do it. And so we talked a lot about transcending death and trying to approach it in sort of the least expected way. When she's at her mother's bedside and her mother dies, one of the things I told her, said, everything that happens in this room is a gift. And so if you watch it, it is, it is and she plays it that way. And her mother, in her death, you know, hands her back her self confidence. So we played it as something beautiful, not as something sad. And we played her moment of death, and she knows she's going to die. She knows she's going to blow up in that ship. And that's also transcendent. That's uh, her achieving a sense of peace. And she stops fighting her destiny. And the horror of it's played on everyone else. I and mean, this is interesting. You know, the, the closest witness is Apollo, of course, who's losing the love of his life. But, you know, I've got everyone else in the CIC listening on the radio to what's going on. And this is an instance where I broke the style of the show. If you go back and look at it, the uh, scene on the CIC is uh, we put the cameras on tripods and dollies. And it stops becoming a documentary style. It stops being handheld. It gets very, very, very still. Because I knew mean, the emotions were so intense. that didn't do anything to take away from them. Hmm. And then you just watch everyone, everyone's work in that moment. It's very short, but everyone has this close-up where they, in a sense, realize what's happened. And, you know, we shot it very traditionally. And, and everyone delivered. If you watch Michael Hogan, who's acting with one eye, he just basically dies with her. in hmm. that brief close-up of him, he just basically like, turns into a corpse himself incredible. Mm-hmm. And that's how, you know, we dealt with death in that. In suicide, the idea we had was that, you know, she has a moment in the teaser where she's deeply affected by finding personal items of the people that died in this Holocaust. And she's uh, having trouble holding it together in a ride. She's in a raptor coming back to the planet. She's having trouble holding it together. And if you watch carefully, it's very subtle, but she makes the decision to kill herself in that moment. Mm-hmm. It's the only way she can find peace is to decide that she's going to get off the bus. And so to make it meaningful for her, she's going to give all of her hope and optimism and strength to Lee before she steps off. So she's just, she's the bright spot in the, in the episode. Everyone else is bummed out and she's bringing life to everyone she touches and going on dates and having fun and she's just giving the last shreds of her life away because she knows what she's going to do.
0: Is that something you work out with the actor? You say like this scene in the raptor, D is going to make this sort oh, of... Oh
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like that's not the script, but Candice and I—we just started talking about it. like, well, when's the moment? Like, when does she decide? The last moment? Is, is she just in denial, and then she decides to do it, or is it early? And so we just tossed it around until we came up with that. Mm-hmm. But you have to know. I mean, you just—I mean, that's was, like the first question, because yeah, you know, how do you, you have to know how to play everything? And if you don't know that, then you know it's all just—it is nothing to pin it to. Mm-hmm. Likewise, Cat's death was out of sacrifice, Callie. Well, Callie just got killed. <laughs> she got totally hoodwinked and killed, and had her baby stolen. It is very interesting that one of my disappointments is that in that scene where Tori slaps Callie and takes the baby and locks her in the airlock, in my version the baby goes flying, lands, <laughs> lands in a heap on the other side of the airlock. It's like screaming, but that was too dicey for sci-fi. <laughs>
0: That episode you actually used a lot of interesting camera work too, the lens you used or something to portray the hallucinogenic sort of viewpoint of Callie as she was having these uh, weird visions. How did you work that out?
1: I was working on the idea of her being alone she knows the secret and she can't tell anybody, she can't, you know. And she's totally alone in her life and she's alone in her drug dependence. And so I kept wanting to isolate her from the rest of the reality, from everything else in the frame. And I've always been a fan of the old fashioned Vaseline on the lens effect from the you know, the twenties. The old cinematographers would do they put a nylon stocking in front of the lens and burn a hole in the center. So you'd have an area of clarity and then the rest would be soft. I was talking with Steve McNutt, DP, and he says, Oh, there's this thing called the Highland lens, which is a device that goes between the lens and the camera and has in it a piece of frosted glass with a clear hole in it. But it's uh, connected to these servo motor so that you can move the area of clarity, change its size, and move it around within the frame while you shoot. And you can also dial in and dial out the amount of fogginess for the rest of the frame. So we got all excited about using that, and we used it in a few shots. But we found that the old-fashioned version, which is basically putting Vaseline in front of the lens, were better. Mm. Most of the shots are Vaseline. There's one where Carol comes into the room, and after she knows he's a Cylon. And she won't turn around and face him. And he's apologizing for his behavior background. That's the Highland lens. Hmm. If you watch carefully, it gets foggier and foggier as the scene goes on. But it's a very, very, very old-fashioned technique and idea.
0: A lot of shows now are going digital. Are most of the shows you work with now gone on to using digital cameras? And has that changed how, yeah. you, how you work?
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, the reason for, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is the recent Screen Actors Guild contract The old division of labor in the old days was that screen actors guild SAG covered actors in film projects, and AFTRA was for actors in video projects. But back then, video was the news and soap operas. And now what's happened, because of whatever happened in all their negotiations, is that shows are going digital so that they don't have to deal with SAG anymore, and they all have AFTRA contracts, Hmm. which are more producer-friendly. So in fact, I was doing, when I did flash-forward which is shot on HD. I want to do a sequence in Super 8. And they said, well, they said, the final screen time can, it must be under 90 seconds <laughs> or else you have to switch to a SAG contract for all the actors. Hmm. So it's interesting the way that the lawyers have changed the creative process. But anyway, for that reason, the only shows I've shot on film lately really are older shows, Heroes and CSI, because they started on film before all this you know, nonsense. But to answer your question about, it doesn't change how I shoot a lot. There's subtle differences. When I'm shooting on electronic medium, I'm more apt to keep the camera rolling. And rather than cut and start over and do another take, I'll just keep the camera rolling and take it again. Or shout something to the actors and just keep them, you know, do three or four or five takes in a row without cutting the camera. And it keeps things alive and allows you to work faster and, you know, it changes really quickly. In film, it's hard to do that because you have the danger of running out of film. Because it gets really expensive after a while. That's about the only difference for me in shooting. I still prefer to look at the film. Still, there's just nothing like it. The difference is subtle, but when you see the final product, I mean, the film is just beautiful, mm. and your brain responds to it a different
0: way. Caprica's used one of the new kind of trends these days is the Canon 5D Mark II digital SLR camera with the lens baby on it. Have you tried that at all? Or because that that's taking it to another level because the camera is so small and it has, I guess, the portability of it and the freedom to do almost anything with it.
1: I have used it a little bit. Right now, there's a really good focusing rig you can put onto it. Before we were actually, I was doing some shots where we were handing the camera from person to person to create sort of a fake crane move. But we couldn't control the focus, so we had to, you know, it was limited. you know, I think it's great in tight places, but I don't know. To me, the camera is the least important part of it. It's it's all about what you're putting in front of the camera. And there's been so much talk about, you know, shooting shows of this thing and thinking, okay, well great, but you know, ninety percent of the time it's gonna be sitting on the toy <laughs> you know, like the other camera and doing what the drama drama the scene demands. Right. You know, rather than we've got this little tiny camera, where can we put it and it's really kind of a tail wagging the dog approach in my mind. Mm. I think the great advantage is walking into small locations and being able to jam the camera up against the wall, you know, to get shots rather than having to cut holes and things.
0: Uh, I wanted to bring up one of the Battlestar episodes, Someone to Watch Over Me, because that one had two things that I found interesting. One being Starbuck and her piano-playing father. Well, there's still some debate who that guy was, uh, whether he's her father or what, because uh, the later revelation about her angelic status. Did you have an awareness of where that was going? So when you shot with Katie and you decided how you're going to play, that interaction with the piano player, did, did you... Have your own suppositions about it, or was there some sort of awareness about what was to happen? There wasn't
1: Ron Moore being very cagey about it at the time, even though we were coming up on the ending. The talk of her being an angel been floating around for a while, either was, I had an instinct that that was where they were going, or it was my favorite choice, and so I wanted it to be correct. I can't quite tell the difference. But no one sat me down and said, this is exactly where we're going. And there was actually a program of disinformation being sent out. They really wanted to keep it a secret. So I had a sense of where it was going. As a matter of fact, that sounds pretty early on because if you watch Maelstrom, there's a halo behind Starbuck in every scene, hmm. which I crafted very carefully. Then in uh, Someone to Watch One, me, there's a couple of them. Hmm. And I kept, I just kept that alive as, uh, as often as I could cause I wanted it to be so, I wanted to be building up to the place I wanted it to go. And I don't think anyone knew for sure until they actually shot the last one and you know, they had options. Hmm. Either way... And we shot it as if it were a visitation from her father. No one else ever sees a piano player. We talked about having him only exist in her point of view, but that was really too limiting. But he only exists when she's around. The other part of that episode was that we couldn't—we never knew at what point the nickel would drop for the audience. Mm. We talked about this a lot, David and badly, and Ron and on Is the audience going to know too early? Are we really going to hold the surprise back until the reveal? And even now, at right, different audiences. Some people just guess it right off the bat, and some people aren't surprised. The other thing that was interesting about that was when we auditioned actors for that, I would only see actors who could actually play. I didn't want to do the fake-out where you shoot over the piano and the actor moves his arms, and then he cut an actual piano player's hands. That's always, I can see right through that one every time. Mm-hmm. So I wanted an actor who could actually play, and then also playing in the scene focuses an actor, and they stop thinking about their acting so much. And also the style of the show is uh, a roaming lens. I wanted to be able to go to his face and his hands and up to Starbuck and tie it all in and just do it for real. And then what that required us to do was to bring Bear McCrary up to Vancouver to compose everything he played ahead of time so that he could learn it and play it in the scenes. And then we also planned a lot of the scenes, some of this survived the final cut; some of it didn't, but every time he plays, I had Bear score a minute before and a couple minutes after. So essentially his piano playing would be the musical score for the scenes that preceded and followed his scenes. Mm. And so it was all carefully, really carefully worked out. And the mm. other interesting thing we did was we got the worst piano we could find, and we bashed the hell out of it and made it look horrible <laughs> and put it on the set. And by the time we were done with all of that, it was, it was out of tune. But uh, it sounded like a real piano, bar piano. And it sounded great. It was out of tune in a really delicious way. And so uh, Bear McCrary spent, I don't know how many hours with a sound engineer, Digitally sampling every key, every note on that piano, and with all different attacks, and so he could take it back to his composing studio in L.A. and actually play that piano electronically, hmm. play that that piano sound on that set, so he could replace stuff that the actor had done, or he actually used that piano in the score of the show, which he did. That actual piano sound is all through the score, just the way in um, sometimes great notion. Candace, when she was shooting the scene, the suicide scene where she's taking off her ring and her necklace and looking at her picture for the last time before she picks up the gun. She started humming this little melody. I said, I'm just making it up. I said, "To it. (laughs) Great. And then when we finished the scene, I had the sound recorder just record her humming that song, that tune, over and over again, different ways. And I called Barrett, I said, got to use this. And Candace is writing the melody for the score. And so if you listen carefully to that episode, that melody, it's in the episode from the beginning, and often it's Candace actually humming. Even after she's dead, we scene seeing the morgue. You know, she's still present because she has voices on the soundtrack.
0: Huh. And now, the other thing from Watch Over Me is the Hilo boomer scene, which, according to lore, started off as something more innocuous that was just, a kissing scene, but you supposedly suggested it be much more. Is that true? Yeah. Knowing that, uh since there's only a couple episodes left, to me that's a big thing to happen to the characters, is that something that I mean you knew was potentially uh a wrench putting into the relationship but uh you still went ahead with it.
1: To me it was irresistible because the scene pointed in that direction. You know, you've got uh, Athena tied up this tall, and you've got a kissing boomer, not knowing maybe not knowing who it is. <laughs> And I called Ron and I said, you can't, like, point the airplane at New York and not go to New York. Let's <laughs> do it, you know. And his response was, you know what, that's so wrong, it's right. <laughs> and uh, he encountered a huge amount of resistance from the network. And they said, no, 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 you'll turn off the entire female audience. You know, to have a man have sex with a robot double of his wife and not know the difference. <laughs> I said, no, I said, it's exactly the opposite. I said, every going to elbow her husband and say, you see, that's what you guys are like. <laughs> They of, they're going to be totally justified. <laughs> the other thing is there's a scene we shot that's not in there, which is the aftermath of the sex. Well, he still tied up in there. Boomer gets up and gets dressed, and he just lying on the ground I'm oh, like, God, that was fantastic. And there's a little ambivalence about whether he suspects mm. what just happened, and basically just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> and I think that was a step too far for the mm. network. Mm. What was nice about that is, you know, whenever you're shooting a sex scene, issues of privacy and delicacy, and when we shot that, it was, we cleared the set of everyone except for totally essential personnel, which was camera operator, system camera, and boom operator. That was it. Everyone else had to leave the set and watch on the monitor so the actors could have, you know, a sense of privacy. But having all worked at it for four years, it was very familial. They were just totally fine with it. and. This is true also of the, the sex and the pain in the white paint scene with Starbuck and Rio, which is you start out with the actors wearing modesty panels <laughs> and tasties, uh, and then you start shooting, and you go, you know what, we see them, and then and then everything comes off, and we do it for real, and just know that there's, we're going to end up shooting stuff that's got to be carefully
0: edited for television. Mm. Speaking of deleted scenes, I've heard there was a deleted scene in Maelstrom with the white viper and cat showing up. Is that true? or? Is, uh, yes. Yes. Could you describe what that was about?
1: Yeah, it was something that Starbucks saw just before the explosion. She looks up and there's cat flying alongside her. Hmm. It's like, you know, giving her a salute. prep mm-hmm. I went to the ice department and said, well, I said, this is a, like a heavenly vision because we know Cat's dead. It's totally non ambiguous. She's definitely dead. So she's, Appearing, the heavenly figure back from the dead. I said, "Then should I have a brand new Viper." And then everyone like started tearing their hair out about what's going to cost to, you know, <laughs> repaint the Viper. And then paint it back. <laughs> there's only one good one, and uh, it became a really big deal. And we shot it. You know, there's footage somewhere.
0: So Caprica, the most recent episodes that you've done for the Battlestar Universe with "There Is Another Sky," you had the first crack at depicting New Cap City. How was that to lay your thumbprint on it and? leave the groundwork for those who would come next.
1: Well, it was a plum assignment, a delicious assignment to be the one to work out, create you know Cap City. The film noir came up immediately because there's already a 40s feeling to the Torons in, in the real Caprica city. And so let's just go all the way with that. Because the idea is that so the Torons are 40s, Daniel Greystone and Capricans are kind of 60s, not hippie 60s, but <laughs> earlier 60s. Madman 60s. yeah. The world is eighties. And so, you know, I'm trying to think of what you catch it. So we decided just to go with a just go extreme with the with the forties. The photographics well first we just wanted to go black and white. The network was afraid of that and everyone's terrified of the studios and networks are terrified of black and white. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know why it's so beautiful. So we started experimenting with infrared. Black and white infrared photography. Black and white infrared, it looks like black and white, but it has a kind sort of a ghostly feel, although the highlights are burned out and they glow, skin glows. And since we're shooting on, we're not shooting on film, we couldn't go get an infrared film to shoot with. We did a lot of exposure tests, with the HD camera, and then there was a, uh, we heard about, there's one camera in existence with HD camera, which actually photographed the infrared spectrum, but it was too risky to depend on just one camera shoot all that stuff, it would have slowed us down. So we just experimented until we found the look we got, which was to take all the color out but one tiny little percentage. And it's interesting because it almost goes black and white and the color that lingers the most is red, which we liked. To kind of blow out the highlights to try to mimic that infrared effect although we didn't quite achieve that exactly. And then to sort of go slightly slightly extreme white angle camera angle for it. There was, a, uh, there was a plan that we had that we ended up not doing. There was a decision in post made not to do it, I don't know why, because I was on to something else at the time. But we shot all the exteriors. The intent ones. we wanted to shoot them day for night. And so we shot them all in daylight, dark, with the intention of replacing the sky. Hmm. So you'd have sort of an odd daylight look, but the skies would be black with stars on them. And that was never done. So now it just looks like day on the outside, which is a disappointment to me. Fight on the Firescape. It was scripted originally as a rooftop, but we thought the Firescape would be cooler. We built the side of a building on a big green screen stage. So we had like three stories, and the actual hotel room was built inside so you could go in and out of the window. <laughs> it was really fun to shoot. Yeah. The bank guards was great, I think late 30s, you know, cop outfits. And it, was just, it was just a blast. And mm. I got to use all my, you know, I'm, I'm a big, huge old movie buff. In those movies in the 40s, everyone wore hats and everyone smoked all the time. So they had all these elegant hat tricks and cigarette tricks, which I had to teach all the extras and everything. We actually showed up and and were wearing fedoras and smoked cigarettes. You know, so I was running around getting guys to light like matches with their thumbnails, with their hats on, and do that kind of stuff.
0: <laughs> For the next episode, you did Know Thy Enemy. That was the first appearance of some important characters, Virgis and Barnabas. When you have new characters... Do you work with the actors to set up characterizations from them so they can hit the ground running?
1: Yeah, ideally. Ideally, I'll try to get as much time as I can with them in prep until we have a chance to talk about it, coming together on approach. The problem with Burgess was that he wasn't cast until the very last minute. So when John Piper Ferguson, the actor, who's fantastic, I have to say, and I've used him since, I can't imagine not using him. Yeah, he's used him in CSI. When he showed up, we were, it was basically the day of shooting. And we said, okay, let's, uh, let's find this guy. <laughs> and with Piper, it was a matter of, then I mean, just really came out of working towards doing nothing, just using the natural strength of the actor and not pushing anything, just keeping him very calm because he's just, he's just a strong presence. Mm-hmm. When you're a leader, you don't have to push. You expect to be obeyed and be very confident. So we just worked towards, basically, all I said to him was less. And the first evening shot was the wardrobe that that um, Neely has with Gravestone. Uh, with Greystone. He's great in it. You know, so you imagine this guy showed up, he hasn't had a chance to talk to anybody, He's sitting down in the scene with the stoves.
0: And how about with Barnabas, with James Marsters?
1: That was interesting. I can I didn't get a chance to work with him ahead of time, although I really wanted to. And he showed up the wardrobe the, the wardrobe, which usually does a fantastic job, I had him in the dorkiest thing. <laughs> you know, he had slacks of a nice shirt all brand new. And I thought wait a minute. It looks like a like a manager of a radiator Shack. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a, like, we almost like we, we waste a lot of time trying to get something. We found this great old leather jacket that matched this great old leather chair that was on the set, and it seemed like it belonged in that environment. It was harder with Barnabas because he's written as such an extreme character. I mean, we meet him and he's wrapping barbed wire around himself. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, I was like, I don't really know anybody like that. <laughs> um, I just talked with James, and you know, actually, either his father or his grandfather was a Baptist minister. He started taking stuff from that. And I said, if we meet the guy, he's wrapping barbed wire around his arm. I said, the rest of the time, he's got to be as gentle as possible. But just a you know, little glimpse of how violent he can be. Hmm. The barbed wire thing, I can't remember how it was written originally, but what we turned it into was, anytime we do anything like that, any kind of gesture or ritual, we try to make it in some way, the ancestor of something that exists in our world. So we took the barbed wire and basically made a tefillin, which is a Jewish prayer strap, devout. Jews are supposed to wrap around their arm twice a day and say his prayer, sunrise and sunset. And so we made his self-torture device, the ancestor of the Jewish tefillin. Hmm. We also created the tattoo and funeral sequence for the Adamas, You know, where they say goodbye to so we created a whole bunch of Torah rituals. You know, none of that was written either. Gestures and the way they greet each other and difference between the way you greet a man and the way you greet a woman. Esai, Morales, and I work out a bunch of that stuff. So if you watch, it's very, we tried to let everyone know for future episodes what we'd worked out. It's like, you know, he's very formal with the women, but the men, like, kiss on both cheeks. And there's a hand gesture for, Saying goodbye to the dead, honoring the dead, and this sort of clapping hand game. We just had to create all this, like a, an entire society's rituals about death on the set. Mm-hmm. And then we stopped and we teach it to all the extras. So it had some sort of reality to it.
0: Right. And you have one more episode for this season to come in the fall, I guess, when it comes back. Oh, uh, actually two. Two? Okay. Yeah. All right. I was aware of one. The Heavens Will Rise, I guess, is the tentative title. And then there's another
1: Yeah, one. the one after that's called Here Be Dragons.
0: Okay. So, I uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, my pleasure. Thanks again to Michael Nankin for talking with me. You can send us questions or feedback at gcorum at gmail.com or our voicemail, 301-358-5175. Thanks again for subscribing. The jump clock is running. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.